0: Page Fright is recorded in Vancouver, on the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Hello everybody, welcome back to Page Fright. My name is, of course, Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at theandrewfrench. And this is a literary podcast. It's my literary podcast. It's the only literary podcast on the entire internet that I host. And today, I am super excited to share episode 1-5, decade and a half, 15, with you. It's super cool. I had a great time recording this episode, as always, with the incredible Fiona Tinwe who I'll talk about in just a second. Uh, but I want to share a very exciting announcement, which is that... Page Fright will be hosting a live recording. That's right. If you get tired of seeing my voice or hearing my voice without actually seeing me in person, this is your chance to come and look at my face while it says things. And also, if you can't stand me and my voice, there will be the voices of many others there. Do you remember Hannah McReady from episode three? She'll be there. What about Isabella Wang? Episode eight. Oh yeah, you know she'll be there reading. And, uh, ooh, A.H. Reom, episode two. That's right. That's a deep cut way back to the second. An episode of the podcast. She's going to come out and read some of her work, and I will be interviewing the always incredible Kevin Spence. It's going to be lovely. It's going to be at Massey Books in Vancouver on December seventh from six to eight p.m. Head right on upstairs to the art gallery there. That's where we'll be doing it. I'm super excited about this. Uh, it's been uh, an idea floating in my head for a really long time since I started the podcast, and I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to get some people in the room and you know kind of look back to some of the people that have read and then build a little bit of a community feel around the people that are reading and continue to do so on the podcast. I also have a bunch of episodes booked up until then and can tell you it will be episode 20, which is going to be a fun little benchmark to get to. Uh, so December 7th, be there or don't be there. Listen to PageFright either way. We'll release the episode, but it would be really sweet to have people out there. And you can RSVP on Facebook. I tweeted out the link to the event um, through our account. Go check that out. But today we are not talking about Page Fright Live, that is a whole month away. Instead, we are talking about the always incredible Fiona tinway Lamb. If you don't know Fiona, you need to. Um, She's an award-winning writer who teaches at SFU's Continuing Studies. Her third collection of poetry is called Odes and Laments, and it was published this fall with Caitlin Press. Fiona's authored two previous poetry books, a children's book edited two essay collections, and her work appears in more than 30 anthologies. That's insane. That's so many anthologies. Uh, Wow, way to go, Fiona. She is dynamic. I use this word very, very closely when I uh, describe what Fiona does. I think her video poems that she talks about are worth checking out. I'll tweet them out on our profile. Um, And it's super cool to check out what she's doing both on and beyond the page. Last week's episode, or I guess it was two weeks ago, I took a little break in between um, just to kind of revive and rest and get ready to put out a new episode number 15 here uh, two weeks after 14 but when we were talking to Shalene Knight I was saying a lot about community building and looking at this sort of thing and I think Fiona is one of those people who also sees poetry very similarly in that it's not just confined to the page. And she does this both, in a community-building sense and also in a Let's Play with Different Forms kind of way that's really, really cool. And I'm super excited to share her work with you. I think it suits the audio media particularly well um, because she is so interested in escaping the confines of the page. Um, and I, I just think it's a great episode. It's, it's really fun. So uh, I'm not going to draw this out anymore. Page Fright Live, December 7th come on out. Uh, Fiona Lamb, check out her work. Uh, Again, her collection is Odes and Laments. We talk about it a bunch. Uh, That's from Caitlin Press, and they are lovely people there that helped me set up this interview. So shout out to Monica at Caitlin Press and the whole press for everything they're doing. It's awesome work. Uh, So let's go ahead, and I guess we'll just jump right in here. How's
1: it going? Good. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's great to be
0: here. Yeah, I'm so excited to finally have you on the podcast because we met a little bit ago at a conference here at UBC, right. and I am—I I was just taken away with the way that you were writing about so many environmental issues, mm. specifically a lot to do with plastic, Yes, and yes. there's a lot of that in this book. The book that we have in front of us is Odes and Laments by Fiona, and it is from Caitlin Press. Yes. Um, and it's phenomenal. I I really enjoyed reading this. Oh, good! It was good. really really cool. I try to read everything uh, that I talk about on the podcast, so I make sure I'm not just like fibbing. Uh, but this, <laughs> Conscientious this, of you. Yeah, this is like genuinely one of the books that I've enjoyed the most because it's been uh, a long time since I well for me a long time in terms of contemporary reading since I encountered your work at that conference, like mm-hmm. let's call it six months ago. Yes, uh, that I've been thinking about your work, and so oh, I'm wow. very excited about this. Terrific. Yeah. Um, The question I suppose to start with is for people who wouldn't be familiar with your work, how would you describe it?
1: Well, my work has changed a lot. Um, This is my third book of poetry and my first two books were mostly autobiographical, focusing on family, ancestry, uh, that kind of thing, parenting, um, watching my aging parents, that kind of thing. And this is my first more environmentally focused book. There's still some autobiographical content in uh, a few of the poems, um, but it's a little broader in form and content. And I decided, just because I've been an environmentalist since I was very young, um, a little kid, and I haven't really written poems about that theme, even though I've supported causes and gone on marches and rallies and that sort of thing. And I've just been so frustrated with the state of the world, as many people are, and alarmed that I thought, I've got to try to write poems about it. But it was really hard not to go into the typical rant, which is a a bit of a turnoff for people. Mm -hmm. Um, So trying to figure out how to write about these political issues and these social and environmental issues was a challenge. And that's why when you saw me... um, uh, six months ago at that UBC <laughs> conference, I wanted to do a presentation about the plastic poems. And it's, it's kind of fun because we all know concrete visual poems from when we were kids, poems that are shaped in some way. They may or not be meant to be read, but they might be Um, say, a a cookie poem uh, that's shaped like a cookie, maybe with a bite out of it, or um, a poem that's shaped like a house, so the lines are arranged like a house. So I thought, I've seen some really cool visual poems by various Canadian and international poets, but I hadn't seen anything done on plastic, and for the longest time I kept thinking, you know, the, the Pacific garbage patch, the big gyre. There are many other gyres as well. Uh, that big kind of swirl, and I thought, oh, I could I could see doing it with a typewriter, and I borrowed somebody's manual typewriter, so I could actually try to do this spiral poem, but it looked like crap, because the keys were, were <laughs> it's an old typewriter, right? So I was like pounding the keys to even get the yeah. them to press onto the uh, ink, onto the page, and, and they, were, they were kind of lopsided, because you have to take out the paper and move it around in the machine, that wasn't really working, with, so I, I was quite frustrated, because I had this idea of this image I wanted but no idea how to do it on the computer. So a good friend of mine who uh, was more computer savvy said, "You know you could do this with word art instead of you know trying to manage it with this typewriter. No, mm. also with typewriting, I, am, I make a lot of mistakes when I type and I'm used to typing overwriting and, and typing things over and fixing things and you can't do that with the typewriter. You see the error <laughs> too visibly. Uh, and you can also see that some letters would be darker when you pressed better than than others. So she showed me word art, and then I spent the whole day and the trip back on the ferry from Nanaimo, like playing with this, I was so obsessed with it, like all the possibilities that I could use word art to, to convey what I wanted to convey. And so I generated a whole lot of, um, of these, what I call plastic poems, they're concrete poems about plastic, <laughs> which is like, okay, they're not really concrete, so they're really plastic poems, not concrete poems. Um, but they're very visual and some can be read and some are really just more of a visual experience. And what's great about them is they're very playful and they're very immediate because you can see the shape or the texture or whatever uh, going on on the page. You understand it, so it's, it's really, really accessible, but it isn't sort of an angry rant that's going to turn people off. It's going to get people going, yeah. And yes, of course, they've seen photographs mm-hmm. of plastic bottles piled up in a beach, and they've seen you know test tubes full of microplastic and nanoplastic. They've seen that, but there is something very different when you see it with words. There's something yeah. different when we absorb words and we see words as images. Instead of having imagery conveyed with beautiful metaphors and similes and symbols, why not have the words actually communicate just... By their shape, even if you didn't understand English, yeah. you would get these poems, and um, and it uses a lot of repetition. It uses uh, white space a lot, and in different kinds of ways. And so, out of those um, actual poems on the page, I also thought, wow, I could go even further with these and make animated video poems with the help of people who are technically savvy and can help me animate with with my uh, feedback. And so I did two um, plastic poem videos that use animation in different ways, and I've submitted them to festivals, and they've been screening all over the world, which is really, really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So... Much farther than my print poems have ever gone, I think. <laughs> so even though it's a really simple concept, and you can you know get it immediately, um, I think that's a really good thing, because I don't want people to go, I don't understand that poem, it's yes. too complicated, because the message is really urgent, we've got to see the plastic. We so often forget, you know, we're drinking plastic, we're breathing plastic. Um, from the tire dust off the road as the cars go by, from the uh, water that goes out from our washing machines into our watershed and then back into our our coffee cups. So it is everywhere. So yes, I want to be a little bit in your face about it.
0: Yeah. And I think this is, I mean, you talk about, uh, just now you're saying a lot about like not wanting to come off as super aggressive in these environmental approaches. Yeah, angry. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then, yeah, you just, for, this is an audio medium, so people won't know that you just wagged your finger when you said <laughs> that. But that is, that's not the tone of the poems, right? The, yeah. the poems come off as this very straightforward, like, this is the image, and yes. you can make of it what you can make of it. And what I think most readers will make of it is exactly what you want as a writer. Yeah, um, And I think it's a very effective form. It's really cool. I just, I was taken aback, uh, when I first saw these, and, and I love it. I really oh, do.
1: This great. Well, Jordan Abel has done some amazing stuff with yes. concrete visual poetry, yeah. and it's some concrete visual poets uh, do things just so they're really attractive with letters and letter set, and you know, there's a shape, a pattern, um, and it's it's just very cool. But looking at the history of uh, concrete visual poetry, uh, and looking at Jordan Abel's work in particular. I think there's there's meaning. There's meaning in the shape and the design. And I really wanted to have meaning, not just sort of something really abstract.
0: Mm. I, I think that makes sense to me. Like when I read these... The text that's there, uh, definitely, you are literally commenting over an image, and the image is also commenting on the text, and they're working very well together. It's really cool. Um, But those, of course, aren't all of the poems in this book.
1: No. I did write some regular lyric narrative poems about the (laughs) environment, like about how um, trees, there's been some wonderful research about trees. Uh, The... Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wolobin and other people, researchers talk about how trees communicate. Yeah. So I wrote this poem about how um, trees communicate with each other, but they're at risk. And there was this wonderful line from the Lorax. I loved Dr. Seuss <laughs> growing up, just loved Dr. Seuss and the rhymes and the whimsy. And the Lorax, I mean, there's a lot of moral uh, underpinning to Dr. Seuss, and with his uh, Lorax story, there's this line um, I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. Oh. And I thought, you know I've got to do a poem about that um, that 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 line. Yeah. And so I actually did write one. The only problem was that when I wanted to use that line and have it as a epigraph um, the publisher insisted that I had to get permission oh from Dr. Seuss's publisher, Dr. Seuss is dead, so from his estate, uh, from his publisher, Penguin Random House, and they wanted 160 U.S. dollars for it, so I decided I had to change the title and take out the epigraph, but I would refer to it in the acknowledgments and in readings and uh, interviews, of course, I can quote it. Freely. Yes. So um, I can read that poem if yeah, you I'd like. Yeah, I'd love
0: to get it reading. That'd be sweet. Sure.
1: So the original title was The Trees Have No Tongues, and the quote uh, from the Lorax was, um, I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. Now it's called Forest. The trees soft and sigh as they sway, receiving sunlight, open-palmed. Creak and moan in winter blasts. Dawn to dusk, biophonic corrals held within and between upheld arms. Trills, pecks, caws, thrums, hoots. Within each trunk, clicks, pops, and crackles as tiny embolisms of air break tension. Tensile rivers coursing in ultrasonic song up through xylem to bow, branch, twig. While below the forest floor, lacing roots entwine in a wood-wide web of questing, dendrites enmeshed in fungi to commune with kin, nurse saplings, nourish the ailing, or plot and warn as they record each marauding. The forest suspends its breath with every felled giant. Roar of uprooted centuries, wrenching of earth limb from earth flesh, who will hear, as the world smolders? Let each poem be a fallen tree's tongue.
0: So cool, and of course we come back to the Lorax at the end. Yes, it's yes, very, absolutely. Very cool. It's always so fun to me to find where people get inspiration for poems, uh, especially when it's a case like this where it's like we're writing a very like almost—it's not quite eco-critical, but definitely uh, ecologically minded piece. And we're yes. from Dr. Seuss, which yes. frequently does not have much to do with <laughs> ecology. But it's so cool to me. I just yeah. I love this, and I sure. love that it's Dr.
1: Seuss. Sure, and it, I want to appeal to everybody. I feel like, um, sure, there's room for, for poetry in academia, obviously for analysis mm-hmm. and so forth, and very complex poetry, but right now I feel like there's this urgency to communicate in a way that can reach as many people as possible. And a little bit of humor, a little bit of whimsy, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of pop cultural references, childhood references. Why not? If it's available and it helps make the medicine go down.
0: Let's do it. And you know what? These are things too that I find. I've been going through a thing lately where I'm trying to get back to having fun writing poetry. Yes, fun. And I think that it gets lost a lot of the time when it's like I'm working on a manuscript and I want to do this and that and the other thing. You get lost so easily that it's hard to remember, hey, this is that thing I started out doing because it was fun. Yes. And then you find a Dr. Seuss line and all of a sudden you're back to that Sort of childish delight with writing a poem, yeah. Uh, And I love that. I love seeing writers engage like that with their writing. I think it's the most valuable part of what we do.
1: Well, I I see audiences actually, you know, sit up and pay attention, right? Yes. (laughs) So instead of you know closing their eyes, sitting back, sometimes that's good if it's some sort of elegiac thing where you're thinking uh, about the past, Um, but. Mixing it up a little bit to to keep people alert Mm -hmm. and their attention is really important. Um, And so with this Odes and Laments book, um, I tried to write about ordinary things uh, because they're so precious. And a lot of the odes are laments um, because they're things that we value that are at risk of of being lost. Mm -hmm. So, for example... um, uh, I wrote about uh, a sea star that I saw on the beach, and I wondered about global warming, how that's been killing off all these sea stars. Uh, I wrote about uh, utility poles. I thought nobody else has written about utility poles that I know of. So, and I was wa- I walk down these alleys sometimes. or cycle down them, um, just because it's there's no traffic, and um, I have to be careful though when I get to the streets, of course almost been hit a couple of times, but I, I see all these utility poles, and I think, you know, and, and they're right beside trees. So I thought, I'm going to write a poem about utility poles, and I'm going to write about, you know, Canuck the crow. I don't think there's going to be a risk to crows, because they're pretty hardy creatures, but, you know, just following birds. Mm-hmm. Actually, Canuck the Crow is at risk because he's gone missing. Um, He's been, I think, kidnapped, we think. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Because once you become a celebrity, you're at risk (laughs) of unwanted attention.
0: This is true. Mm one of my favorite things to do is bring in questions from the last episode's guest. Okay. And so the question for you today is what is the one thing that you fear about having your workout in the world?
1: Um, Well, I've had negative experiences in the past with my workout in the world and uh, it's when it's really... Misunderstood, and people assume all kinds of narratives about me and my life, and my parenting and my personality. So it's those unwanted misassumptions Hmm. that um, surprise me and catch me off guard.
0: So almost misreadings. Yes, misreadings. misreadings. I'm sure this is something that is frequent, not as a product of the way in which you write, but more so as a product of the way in which you are a writer. Uh, Sure, (laughs) well people come with their own stories, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And how do you deal with this sort of thing?
1: Well, for example, if I've written a story or a poem about conflict, for example, it might be that that conflict was just maybe two percent of the time with this particular individual and the other times were happy and peaceful. So just because I've written about that conflict does not mean that that conflict characterizes the entire relationship. So poems, stories, essays, they can represent just a moment in time. Mm -hmm. And with poems in particular, they represent exactly what they say. If the poem says years and years, then it's years and years. If it says nothing about time, we can't assume that it's an ongoing situation. People tend to see poems as very autobiographical. And autobiographical is fine, but again, it could be just a 10-second period. You wrote about an angry episode or a sad episode. You could be writing about heartache, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be lovelorn uh, the rest of your life. Mm. Uh, so I've had some people assume things about my family, um, my ancestry, and um life situation and I was just kind of surprised or they feel that they've got a window into me that maybe isn't quite the correct window.
0: Yeah, I think that's very, very reasonable. And I can understand to the kind of reading into poetry, especially yeah. because poetry, I think poets in a lot of cases, I definitely wouldn't say this is the case with your work. I think your work uh, gets its point across quite strongly. Uh, as we were talking about the plastic poems, like it's hard to read too far into one of those yes Uh, exactly (laughs) they are what they are and so we understand them but I think with poetry a lot of poets do this sort of mystical thing with their writing where they're trying to misdirect a reader yeah it's a little ambiguous exactly so that specificity that your work brings I think um, almost combats those misreadings Um, but I think as poets in general poetry is one of those formats that people are just prone to misread
1: misread and also sometimes to judge yes uh, I remember one uh, poetry workshop I wrote about my mother's Alzheimer's and this memory test where you uh, start from 100 and you subtract 7 and see how far you can go. And people with Alzheimer's have really hard time with that exercise. And so I wrote about that, and I wrote about how that made me remember the math lessons, the attempted math lessons my mom uh, gave me when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Um, and this woman in the class really freaked out about it. And she said, you shouldn't judge your mother. And she was just trying to help you. And oh, wow. I was like, hey, <laughs> you, not... know, you know, relax. And I thought, Whoa, that's, that's her stuff. Mm. That's her stuff, whether it's how she taught her own kids about math, perhaps, <laughs> uh, or her own worries about dementia. I don't know. But I've had that kind of reaction where people have... Um, Jumped to conclusions and been kind of judgmental. Yeah, and that's
0: unfortunate, but I think it's something that happens to a lot of writers. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Because actually it means it was an effective piece because it rang a chord. Maybe the wrong chord in her, but it, it touched someplace that was very sensitive.
0: Well, it also means the reader saw something valuable in your work enough to interrogate it. Yeah. Uh, Even if that interrogation led to a different place than you would have (laughs) wanted them to go, um, there is still that to it. So yeah, it's always fascinating to see. I'm always interested in seeing how people read my stuff. It's never, I I don't think I'm one of those people whose language is incredibly... I, I'm going to use the word mystical because I don't know any other word that fits here. There's the language part that I'm talking about. But, yeah. but I, I think uh, it's always fascinating to see what people think of your work. Sure. Um, and, and, and how they're reading it.
1: Well, I mean, some
0: uh, poets might say my work is too clear, that it's
1: too obvious, not sufficiently opaque or complex. Um, but the poets I love who... May or may not be award winning poets, may or may not be iconic poets. Um, They write clear poetry, Mm -hmm. and I understand. Not maybe everything, but I get the gist and the intent and the emotion underlying it. Um, So I don't think it's a fault to be clear. Um, It's nice to have some layers, for example, in some poems, for sure. And maybe some things might not be really, really straightforward. They might take a little work to do, but I don't attempt to be obscure, quite the opposite.
0: Yeah, yeah. and like we were talking about the plastic poems. They are uh, very much so, as I said, they're hard to misread. They get the point across. And I think if you were trying to do something very sort of, let's use the word opaque, like you, you said, with those poems, it might throw off the actual attention that it would receive and, and the right. way in which it would be received by a reader so sure. I think I think it makes sense with a lot of the stuff that you're writing about to keep that clarity there yeah. and I find it very effective in in the book so it's oh, great. it's very cool Good. Um, we've been talking a bunch about the plastic poems yes and I'm wondering if I could get you to read one of them
1: absolutely <laughs> absolutely um, there's some obvious that that can't be read there's one that has The word plastic and different fonts broken up into (laughs) fragments like microplastic yeah and there's one that looks like um, different creatures swallowing plastic Mm -hmm. and there's another one that's a big plastic um, looks like a cup with uh, words using letters from the word plastic so it's actually made out of Plastic, so cool. but And with a straw that's uh, got plastic in different languages. But yeah. there are other ones that are shaped like a bottle. And there's one that um, um, is shaped like a, a big plastic plate. And it's called Plasticnik. Open plastic hampers. Pop open plastic lids of plastic clamshells a convenient feast huddled within. Sit on plastic chairs around plastic tables draped with plastic. Use plastic spoons to heap food on plastic plates, devour it with plastic forks and knives. Pour soda from plastic bottles into plastic cups and suck it up with a plastic straw while the baby suckles on a plastic soother. Later, wrap all leftovers in new plastic, or scrape them into old plastic, carry it all home in plastic. Then take plastic out of plastic to put on plastic shelves in the plastic body of the fridge. So, Plastic Nick uh, was a fun poem to write. It's basically just centered and it's shaped uh, like a circle. In, within a circle, mm-hmm. and that's the one I turned into the um, one of the animated plastic poems. It's a mandala of plastic things that we use in picnics that sort of pop up and circle around, accumulating uh, around the circle, while the word plastic appears in different colors and different fonts. And then at the end of the, the video poem, which you can find on my website online, um, Plasticnik on Vimeo, it has scenes uh, uh, photographs of you know turtles swimming with plastic bags and plastic mm-hmm. trash so the message is all there as well
0: it's very cool and i i love the video poems too i had the chance yeah. to see some of them uh, as we mentioned like a couple months ago yeah. um and you mentioned they're up on your website what's the yes. url
1: it's just Fionalam.net.
0: okay mm-hmm. guys i have to stress it's so cool to check these out i think it's a really really interesting way of playing with language and uh, I will definitely post that link on our Twitter oh, terrific. as well because it's it's so cool. I really enjoyed watching these, and uh, especially like comparing it to to the uh, actual textual form in the book yeah. is a really interesting little experiment.
1: Yeah. Well, we had to change it in the video uh, animated video version because you can't have all these words just sort of stuck in the middle of the screen. So um, we decided to use fridge magnets. Um, for the credits, for example, which were a lot of fun, because I remember, you know, plastic, fridge magnets, and what's going to happen? Are they, you know, swallowed by whales and so forth? And then um, there wasn't room in in the middle of the plate on on the screen, so we just had the image of uh, plastic sort of pulsing in different colors and fonts as it's uttered in the poem, so you get the sense of this repetition.
0: Yeah, it's so cool. I I love it, and I love the common. I mean, we've talked a bit about common images today because I think one of them is the rainbow plastic letters that my yes. can had on their fridge. Yes, exactly. Uh, I don't know. I used to try and write stuff with those. It was always oh fun. yeah, yeah. Even <laughs>
1: even those magnetic poetry sets. I oh, mean, they're they're, fun too. Yeah. Yeah, they're more plastic. But also plastic. Poly- yeah. Yes, polyvinyl chloride PVC. Yeah. Very. Very bad. So don't throw those out. Maybe there's a poet out there who does, you know, poetic
0: installations with those, and they could be used. Yeah. Also, guys, if you want to write a poem, uh, check out paper and pen or your computer. Uh, even though that's also plastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know where the solution is as a poet, but it's not in those magnets. That's right, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and you talked about um, going through with a typewriter and literally twisting a piece of paper yeah. and manually doing this process. Yes. Uh, there's something so cool to me about the tactility of that work. Absolutely. And, and getting down to physically working with your text. Yes. How did that influence your writing for the book?
1: Well, what I did was I did a chapbook first, a plastic poem chapbook, and that was fun because I was using um, a um, exacto knife very badly in an old jar <laughs> lid to dry to draw uh, cut out a circle so that there would be with these recycled posters there'd be a hole through the poster onto the poem, mm. um, but it was it was pretty uh, labor intensive and and challenging. Um, but certainly it, it bordered on my thinking, you know, this would be really cool to actually write letters with garbage on the sand, for example. I've done a couple of shoreline cleanups, um, but usually the, our shores have several cleanups in a row, so it's like, there isn't enough garbage for me to use. I mean, I guess I could do it with cigarette butts. That would be really cool, actually, to write with yeah. cigarette butts they are small and you can manip- manipulate them different ways. Um, I've wanted to do that, to actually do some kind of installation and document it with photography. But again, I would have to get a collaboration going with people who can uh, figure out the lighting to photograph things properly and and so forth and get enough cigarette butts yes uh, maybe with a group of friends and we could all arrange because it's very time-consuming to arrange I was finding that with broken um, cutlery plastic cutlery to yeah. even write one word it's like oh yeah. and you need a lot of space too yeah more than my living room and then I don't <laughs> want to be littering a beach right yes. to be seen to be doing that yeah so um, I had some thoughts about doing it on a park bench and other places hmm. so it's it gave me some more ideas uh, working with plastic because it is malleable and there are little pieces of it yeah um, but I would kind of need to you know take over a parking lot gather enough garbage and then clean it up and I would it would be best to have a team so it doesn't get blown away and cause more uh, pollution and, and uh, garbage. Uh, um, litter all over the place. So it's, when we do this, like even doing an animated poem, you need to have a bit of a team, you know, a sound person. Um, You could do it really by yourself if you had the skills, um, but to do it expeditiously and efficiently, and to do it at that level of professionalism, you need kind of a team. So I would love to do some kind of, you know, poetic, plastic poet, uh, poetry kind of intervention. Um, and then lay things out, and then have someone film, maybe in time lapse photography, people writing a poem with cigarette butt pieces. Yeah. On a, on a I'm seeing it already. Oh, so cool. <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. be cool. And and but I need to have the right poem, and then enough cigarette butts and pieces of plastic, and then a cleanup crew. I mean, obviously I'd be cleaning yeah. up too yeah. to do it really quickly before it gets blown away and to arrange to get the space to do it and to have the camera high enough and the lighting high enough to do it. So I had all kinds of ideas of doing sort of these installations because I've seen people do sculptures with plastic, but then you're using glue and stuff. And then what's going to happen with the plastic? You direct yeah. it, and it's not really going to be recyclable anymore. So maybe writing with plastic uh, on the ground on a non-windy, sunny day uh, with a team would work. So it definitely gave me some some ideas.
0: Very cool. Um before I mean we're almost halfway through here, I, I was hoping to get you to read a random poem as well. Sure. I forgot to bring Fiona a book today, guys. I really blew it. Uh but Fiona has our handy Poetry and Voice Random Poem Generator. So what poem do we have today?
1: I've got a wonderful poem by Rosanna Deerchild about residential schools called The Second Time. And I'm actually registered as one of the poets with Poetry in Voice, and I hear students perform um, and compete uh, regionally. And uh, I really enjoy that because to see students so enthusiastic about poetry is absolutely amazing. It's the best. It's the best. And, and they've chosen some great Canadian poets and great Canadian poems uh, uh, for the, the students to learn and memorize. So I'll just start the second time. I ask Mama about residential school. She says no. I ask her again. She says no. The third time, I stop. Listen to her silence. Ask about her diabetes, her hip achy back. Her sore knees. Did she get her hearing aid fixed? Whether she thinks it'll rain tomorrow. Mother talks about all this. Says, I'm not too good my girl. My sugar is too high. Arthritis acting up. That damn doctor. He won't give me any more pain pills. This hearing aid is shit. And the rain The rain hurts, my girl. I listen to her talk, backwards slow, fill her cup with tea. So I really like this poem by um, Rosanna, dear child, because there's a lot of silence in it. Um, There's a lot of white space in between the lines and the stanzas, and it isn't Oh, residential school, terrible, bad. We know that. The silence tells us that. Yeah. And there's a way of communicating and having a conversation about the mom with the daughter that's a real conversation, that's a connecting conversation um, about her life, the mother's life, um, that's, that's meaningful and real and about pain. Um, and, and so I like what it doesn't say. Yeah. Yeah, it works on that level.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. It really yeah. is. It's very, very well done. Um, I have to say, so you are one of the judges, judges. Yes. And so one of your jobs is to listen to people read the same poems. Yes. Over and over and over Oh, again. yes. And so I'm wondering what tips you might have for giving readings of poems, given that you have this experience of listening to the same poems read in very different ways.
1: Well, yeah. Um, I come from so much experience of readings that were good and were bad uh, on my own part. So when I first started as a poet, I was extremely, and I still am, extremely shy and self-conscious. So I realized at one of these readings that I did that this wasn't doing service to my words, or if it was another poet's words, to their words. Mm -hmm. And... So I went to Studio 58, which is a theater program at Langara, and I took continuing studies courses through Studio 58 um, in actors' voice and in improv, and did an intensive weekend. And there were all kinds of people there. There were students planning on trying to get into Studio 58, as well as people like me who just wanted to work on their voice and performance. And I learned a lot, so much, from doing those courses and those exercises, which involved uh, projecting my voice and rolling around and uh, imaging in my head to try to convey the image in my head into the texture and timbre of my voice. So I think it's important for all readers, whether students who are competing or teachers, whomever, to really have the images in their head when they're reading and practicing the reading with that in mind. So when I've done, for example, I did a, um, a competition with CBC Poetry Face Off, which was really scary because it was all these spoken word people who perform in a very different way than a page poet does. Yeah, yeah. Very intimidating. But I worked on the poem by choosing keywords from each stanza that had an image. And saying that word over and over again in different ways, as many different ways as possible loudly, softly, tenderly, angrily, uh, and trying to envision the image in my head. So, for example, if it's a poem about orange. Oranges that I think about the radiance or the luminescence and say that word over in different ways softly, like luminescence, 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 (laughs) you know, that way. And then you could try reading it slowly, quickly. You could try reading it moving around the room, spinning. Um, At the Banff Center, they had a theater person help us with our reading, and sometimes he'd hold your hand and he'd spin you around the room while you were reciting the poem or he'd have you close your eyes and turn around and recite the poem that way he'd have you whisper the poem he'd have you (laughs) shout the poem he'd have you do it loud and soft Um, or marching or flapping your arms even if that had nothing to do with the poem (laughs) and that was to shake you up and try to do it different ways and hear it different ways. I also think it's important to record yourself and hear it back. And you'll realize, oh, I'm actually reading it too fast. You think you're reading it at a good slow pa- pace, but actually the readers and listeners are, are behind you. So reading more slowly is, is really helpful. And also you realize, oh, I'm not pronouncing my S's or my L's or my R's. Um, so listening is, is a really good way to learn to read, mm-hmm. uh, listening to yourself and to others. Um, but trying all those techniques, jumping up and down, whatever it is, uh, helps. Um, and trying to do a poem in different volumes, I think, is really important because sometimes really emotional, intense poems shouldn't be shouted. Yeah, uh, You might want to build the intensity, but even then you might want to draw back. It's very much like playing a musical instrument. The instrument is your voice, and if you're playing it really loud, people will cover their ears or kind of cringe. Um, If you're playing it too soft, they can't hear, and then they'll give up. (laughs) So you want to have variation to keep them alert and try to get the texture of the vision. Try to imagine yourself in, in the place and character of the poem.
0: Yeah. And, and all of this boils down to almost just having fun with it. Yes. Playing around with your poem yes. and your piece and not being afraid to do some pretty wacky things by yes. the sounds of it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> okay, so we are unfortunately approaching the end of the interview. We still have two more things to do. Sure. The first of which is, Fiona, do you have a question for our next episode's guest?
1: Sure. Um, it's about form. How does the poet use, form, and white space in their
0: work? This is a really good question. I now ask you this question. So how does the poet use uh, form and white space in their work? I use
1: a lot of different forms in this book. I've written in some traditional forms, like the Japanese tanka, Mm -hmm. and uh, I've also written in the uh, Arabic (laughs) khazal, which is spelled G-H-A-Z-A-L and isn't pronounced gazelle or gazelle but (laughs) (laughs) and um, I also use um, um, some poems that are palindromes so they reverse yeah Yeah. and I've also used form in terms of uh, obviously the concrete visual poems plus I've used Uh, sequences, so I use the rainbow spectrum, all the colors as subtitles to sections in a sequenced poem. So I've used form that way. I've also used white space to um, embody silence and pauses. There's a poem that's sort of a funnel shape. It starts in as a long line and ends with um, two parentheses, ends in a void. Uh, And I wanted to use white space to really reflect and embody white space in the poem. And I've also done a poem that's an ode to a short poem that's simply one line Mm. Um, to show, of course, the shortness um, and brevity uh, that can be used with uh, uh, any particular poem. Uh, So I've done long poems, short poems, uh, poems with longer lines, poems with shorter lines, Uh, using that white space, that silence, that breath in in different ways. Um, And with poetry, there's always the the line break, where one turns the line. And I try to take really good care in choosing my line breaks, how I break the line to emphasize words at the end of the line and give them double meaning as they transition uh, into and jam into the next line. So... Form is really important in this book, and I've tried to use white space all throughout to show that there's a continuum. There's definitely a continuum of how white space can be used.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so cool. You really do play around with it, for, for lack of a better term, in this book. Um, and it's one of those things that I really appreciate, because there's a lot of people who's writing you will pick up a book of, and every poem will look the same. Of course, yeah. they're immensely different from sure. each other, but sure. every page looks so different in this book.
1: Yeah, from the prose poems to the tonka, to the concrete poetry, to the hustle, yeah. to uh, anything else. And I, I like that variety. I mean, some people might say or criticize it as, well, it's not cohesive. I think it's it's very cohesive, but I also want people to stay awake, stay alert, and enjoy the poetry even if it's about dark stuff sometimes Mm -hmm.
0: yeah no it's it's very cool and I honestly enjoyed flipping through and not knowing what was going to come on the next page by the end of the book you're still guessing (laughs) good that's what I wanted it was really cool um we're unfortunately at the end of the episode but would you be able to give us one last reading from the book before we take off sure amazing
1: um I'm going to read a poem for all those poets out there who want to write, and I know that you have a, a following of, of people who love poetry and <laughs> probably write poetry too. I'm going to read the, um, the Huzzle for gestating poems. So of course with the Huzzle form, it's written in couplets. There is a radif, uh, which is a repeated uh, phrase or refrain throughout the poem, so you're going to hear the word repeated throughout, and there's also a rhyme, an internal rhyme, the kafia, that's through it as well. Huzzle for gestating poems. Tantalized by the promise of nascent poems, how the world rustles when we listen for poems. A mother's old purse, fresh-baked bread, petrichor, smoke and clover waft around us, scents of poems. Metaphors crystallized during sleep dissipate on waking, lost in the depths those lucent poems try to conjure spells to trace paths to their magic each trail fades dead-ended recalcitrant poems mine a life for incident love betrayal death but everything's cliche damn transparent poems species vanish Refugees' thirst, autocrats' rise, can we dismantle walls with eloquent poems? Your enjambments confuse, the last stanza eludes, they stalk your subconscious, somnambulant poems. No one cares or buys, they want celebrity prose, why bother writing these obsolescent poems? Poet, dive deeper, probe, caress, meander, leap. Windows will open. Stay bent over
0: your poems. So cool. How the world rustles when we listen for poems, guys. Yes. Uh, big thank you to Fiona for sitting down with me today. I have had an absolute blast Great. chatting with you. Me too. And I am so excited for everything you have coming up because I cannot wait to read more of your work. Um, such a blast. Go check out Odes and Laments uh, by Fiona Lamb. It's a remarkable book and... I, I love it. It's great. It's really, really cool. Thanks so much,
1: Andrew. I had a great time.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Hey guys, that is our interview with Fiona Tinway Lam. Uh, don't forget that her book is out with Caitlin Press. It's called Odes and Laments. It's really remarkable. It's so much fun. I talk in the interview, or at least after the interview, talk to Fiona about how I really appreciated that every page was kind of this new form to her poetry, and I thought that was really neat. So if you're looking for a really, and again, I use the word closely here, dynamic poet, I cannot recommend her enough. Uh, Very, very cool work. And of course, she is Vancouver-based, which is so cool. She talked about Canuck the Crow in the episode, and I love that shout out. So Shout out to Canuck. I hope we got him back. Um, reminder, of course, Page PageFright Live, December 7th. Come on through. It's going to be fun. At Massey Books, I'll be there reading some stuff, talking to some people, uh, some of my favorite writers from the show, and also one of my favorite writers out there, Kevin Spence, will be our episodes, the live episodes guest. Uh, so that's going to be fun. Um, I don't really have much else to update you on. Of course, you can listen to older episodes of Page Fright at theandrewfrench.com slash Page My name, of course, is Andrew French, and I am on Twitter at theandrewfrench. And hey, thanks for listening. This week, this has been Page Fright.